0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. It's absolutely excellent to be back with you on uh, another week. Uh, I was out last Friday, I think, and I I mean I was, I know I was out last Friday, but um what I mean is that I think that this word needed to be used to make it seem like I was pondering this thought in the moment, but when I actually started recording i knew what i wanted to start off with anyway um i was out last friday and i i I, as you may know i don't go out that often um not doing shows at the same time even if i do go out for a few drinks it's 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 either a friend's house or after the range i just go have a few beers it's nice you made a, we made a plan to go out with some friends and of course as the the way things go now you have to create a whatsapp group for that particular evening give that evening a name and then you have to kind of uh, put these ideas of where you want to go so everyone is kind of happy everyone feels like they contributed to the plan everyone's uh, considerations and everyone's preferences are taken into consideration um Anyway, so we landed up at this place called Sly Granny. If you're in Bangalore, you might have heard of it. It's in the new one. Uh, it's in in on Brigade Road in this new mall. Of course, everything eventually in Bangalore is going to be a mall like Dubai, and we're just going to hop in from one mall, uh, stumble upon a slum, and go into another mall. Anyway, exciting, but we got this place pretty shit, if you ask me, um, because it's one of those places which um, you know it it has all these different kind of Uh, hype built around it, right? There's another restaurant in that same mall called Foo, which I unfortunately went to uh, because there's some people who just like, oh, it's amazing. It's just amazing. And these people who build this hype um, and, and you can't even question it because you know what? You don't really can't be bothered and you don't, don't want to go through the pain of questioning but then they recommend it and they make you feel like oh if you don't go there there's something absolutely uh, wrong with your sense of taste and food or you're missing out and i frankly don't care but you know someone said this place let's try it out they didn't even say let's go there this like anything and we said okay something different it had an outdoor area and it was just miserable right there was no vibe there was no energy like the staff i mean and that's the thing like you can make a place really really look really really good but i think the staff either makes it or break breaks it right you can have the right ingredients but this is one of the big ingredients of so the guy literally took 30 minutes from our first um encounter to getting our drink like literally everything was run out and he couldn't decide at the moment that it was run out. He had to go back and say, "Oh, we don't have this." And then, and then his excuse: "Like last night we had a party." I'm like, "Yeah, that's what you do. You're you're geared to have parties, but no, we don't have stock." I'm like, "It's not like I've come to your house and asked you for something obnoxious." I'm at a bar and I'm asking you stuff off the menu. My friend's reading out the menu. He's like, "Why don't we have this?" And he's like, "No, no." And he goes back and he takes his own sweet time to walk, which is uh, at least thirty feet, which is about you know ten um i think 10 minutes a foot he comes back and he's like oh no we don't have this we had a party last night i'm like dude Anyhow, i I, it's and then i think you know these two friends came and they were like they they put their son to sleep and they came back late i mean they came out late and they literally were eager to catch up with a few drinks and their first order this guy just smashes the tray, trips and falls i mean he didn't fall the whole tray just collapsed in their first round is there's another 20 minutes literally what i'm trying to say is that um the The restaurant itself, uh, which was another day, another evening, many months back. And uh, this kind of leads me to the people we the, 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 that go out, right? There's, uh, the, I couldn't help overhear. I could, but I didn't want to um, help myself. I overheard this guy who was, I think, on a date. And he was at the other table, which was not too far away. But my mm, keen sense of hearing picks up on these things. Uh, and this guy, and he's like, uh, let me just paint this picture and of course, it's got a bias. He's he's a typical kind of this 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 sounds like one of these MBA graduate types who's like um, clearly single or he's divorced or he's having an affair. Who knows? And you could hear him on the phone like, "Hey, yeah, 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 it's off on Brigade Road. Yeah, I'll see you. I'll see. a little tinge of an accent. I'm sure he didn't want to play it up because he couldn't have." sustained it for the rest of the evening so just a little bit so he's kind of got this idea to this person that he's a little more um standing out from the rest of the the gang of MBA graduates and he's a little more maybe senior manager uh recently probably just got saved from a layoff that kind of kind of kind of tone in his voice not too arrogant but at the same time he's probably read up just enough on cocktails uh, and he's like I'm, i've ordered a cocktail and these i mean i get it drink a cocktail fucking god bless you if you enjoy cocktails but there's this new group of cocktail drinkers um restaurant goers foodies uh they they, they have the power of the internet and knowledge from the internet to kind of qualify but they don't have the 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 um uh, the genuine love for liquor or food uh to kind of be good fun in a restaurant or a bar like right? because they constantly are trying to prove or outdo someone else online and it doesn't even have to be an influencer right these are just people who think that their um limited knowledge gives them the right or gives them the 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 ability to kind of be, be critical of food uh, critique um, restaurants recommend restaurants put down people who didn't agree with them and also people who are kind of you know nonchalant or people who are like apathetic about it they're like no you must go and as a result you have a city of shit uh food mediocrity um but everyone's like oh it looks really good for the camera and as a result the one or two good restaurants which have sustained you know the good service or the good bars that have kept the vibe going for years um they end up you know, I don't think they miss out because they end up developing a following and they keep getting that group coming back. And as a result, word of mouth spreads. But th- the thing is, I'm not saying anything is good or bad. It's just that they have, we have more and more of this in Bangalore. Uh, shittier restaurants with uh, which are glossed over by um, some kind of decor or some kind of theme that helps them stand out for a few seconds. And then they get these influencers, quote unquote, or these people who think that they know more about food, or they might um, literally uh, not know the difference between their ass and their mouth. But they, they they're entitled to make suggestions, and people, as a result, feel like they have to go. As a result, uh, they they won't feel left out. Uh, like like that guy. I, I sorry, I digressed from my friend, the um, supposed senior manager who just. Past being laid off, passed over being laid off. Now he's on the phone and his date shows up. uh, And I think she's a girl. I think she's a woman. And they're on this table. And he's like, "Um," there was nothing overtly obnoxious about this guy, right? And he might have been a nice guy. I'm not sure. But probably not. Let's just stick with my first impressions. But he was just this guy who you could hear uh, very bad at flirting Uh, making conversation (laughs) and I'm being so judgmental but I totally love it because I can do this and if he had his own podcast, he probably could have done the same about me. But I don't know where it ended or how it ended but we left because, you know, we had two drinks and it took, you know, about three hours. It was closing time. Uh, but we moved on to another place, which is one of our favorites where we really enjoyed. It's called 13th Floor and we we had a lovely time. This, the vibe was good. The service was good and just music was good and we didn't have uh MBA graduates. So we did, I think, have a... I mean, who, which place doesn't have MBA graduates? Because I think Anyway, so this guy's date, I don't know how it went, but it was just this, you know, sometimes you get this this notion of a person just by the way they speak and the the how they speak and the way they order a dish or a drink. And like, I'll order for, uh, what can you get here on a vegetarian for ma'am? I'm like, oh, my God, man. I, I feel there's this, you know, people talk about education and this is going to make a transition here. People talk about education and I get it on a fundamental level, I think. If a a population is educated, um, there's a basic level of education for everyone. I think it's great. Um, And I think it helps a lot of people break the trap of um, their social economic um, situation. And there are great stories of education, you know, really making people literally um, live a different life than their parents did, which I think is great. University and all those things. But for every on one of those there's this thing we especially indians we have this thing where we just feel that getting an education i mean whatever it may be right a, an undergrad a postgrad a, a mba a phd I, I don't know how many of us feel for what we actually have studied and more importantly it gives us this this, this right by society to be complete um dickheads about it right because oh People will absolutely forgive any sin of yours or any flaw of yours. As if, you, if you're more qualified than someone who doesn't have that uh, degree, but is a lot nicer. Like for instance, if you're, you have a PhD or MBA, and you you can you can you can be mean, you can you can be condescending, you can you can be impolite, you can uh, put down your subordinates. But people are like, nobody has MBA, as, as opposed to someone who's probably just passed, you know, just got a bachelor and all the other traits are neglected because they didn't get the masters, the port graduate, especially the MBA. And I find that as a reflection of a really miserable society. Uh, And of course, I'm not generalizing as I, I always make a disclaimer. I'm not generalizing because I think there are a lot of good people doing good work, but there are a lot of people who get away with this and we, We, as a result end up in a population of quote-unquote educated people with MBAs but absolutely no personality absolutely no emotional maturity absolutely no respect dignity um, absolutely no self-respect it's just this idea of pursuing an image that is created by someone else and that is valued quote-unquote valued by a society that they think uh, is progressing which clearly it isn't so It's my two cents, man. You know, I just feel you hear these people. Again, I don't know them. I haven't made the effort to get to know them one on one. But you can get a sense of this, right? Like um, going on business class or traveling on business trips or staying in five stars. The quality of all these things have gone down because the people who use them uh, don't really have the quality that it takes uh, to be a part of it. It's just that they think that their position will give them Uh, the corporate account to go stay in these five stars, but they might be educated to get that job, but they don't know how to treat uh, good things. They don't know how to value these good things. They don't know how to appreciate good things. They'll trash that room just like what they trash their college hostel. And um, as a result, you have quote-unquote luxury uh, feeling pretty unluxurious as a result of people with inflated egos, as I've said in the past, a false sense of achievement and a fake sense of worth that i said it anyway i hope that guy's date went off well i'm pretty sure it went on really badly but i don't know maybe the girl was i couldn't hear her voice or her talking maybe she was as obnoxious and maybe they were match made in heaven or on the fifth floor match made on the fifth floor at that bar which was probably where they've met for the first time and in who knows in two years time they'll talk about it like oh we were at this place and he ordered me a cocktail a cucumber basil with cinnamon and lack of hope it kind of right amount of vermouth and it had the right amount of go and gin which oh it was so good it was samsara the pink one yeah yeah. i could taste the ocean yeah yeah and it's just so perfect he ordered me one of these lotus stems fried it was not olive oil it was done in this beautiful sesame seed oil and just perfect it wasn't like you know got too much of these unsaturated fats i know i heard it i heard it online it was a really good restaurant yeah that's where we met first and then, yeah, he told me all about his job. He told me how much he works. And then, yeah, I was like, "Wow, that's amazing!" You know, job in the twenty first century. Wow, and that he blew my mind with his confidence and you know just his knowledge of ChatGPT. It was brilliant. It was the first date. You know, we we, we knew it was it it was you know validation and, and 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 acceptance at first sight. It was perfect. And we're here today with all our colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> knowing my knowing my luck I'll be asked to MC one of those shitty weddings and I will say yes. Anyway, um wow, am I not positive on this lovely episode? I actually have a lovely, positive and extremely uh well respected individual on today's episode. He's a friend's father. Father of the friend. No, he's a friend's father. He and um well on this episode I interviewed him as a professional because you know it's it's as a friend's dad, of course. Both are as valuable and both as impressive. But Dr. Timapa Hegde is a a neurosurgeon who's been in the field for over 30 years in Bangalore. He's the director of the Narayana Institute of Neurosciences. Um, So I got him for a couple of reasons. Right, One is because he agreed. Uh, But more importantly... I wanted to understand this this thing we're going through as a society because there are a lot of environmental symptoms that are causing um issues with our brain with our nervous system and many times uh when Dr Hegde works on people it's for the tumors or the spinal injuries but I wanted to find out from him when does this start when does this start taking a toll on your body on your brain on your spine and Additionally to the the medical aspect of uh, what Dr. Timapa Hegde does he also is a student of Advaita Vedanta and i wanted to understand how those two worlds uh, can actually coincide and how he navigates these two worlds and how does he apply one to another and what lessons helps him navigate uh, the medical world as a top doctor and how does he take some decisions from being a student of this school of thought a uh, very interesting conversation with a very very insightful knowledgeable compassionate and caring doctor and human being and it was a pleasure and i'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation with dr timah Pahegde. doctor if you're listening i appreciate you being on the podcast and for all of you listening as always thank you till next week goodbye god bless take care of yourselves cheers <laughs> Dr. Timapa Hegde, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you very much, Sandeep. Glad to be here.
0: Lovely. So, you know, as I said just before recording, I'm so used to calling you uncle, but I'm going to be formal on this recording. So uh, I have some questions regarding... The, the, the world we live in when it comes to the environment that we, all of us are immersed in, and specifically since we live in Bangalore and in India, which is an emerging, developing, rapidly developing economy with so much, uh, with so many elements that are different, right? Our population is high. We have so much disparity. But I want to ask you, as, as a person who's in the, in the field of neuroscience and more importantly, a neurosurgeon, um, what are the environmental changes that you see on, well, on the nervous system that have evolved over the past 10 years, which have sort of coincided with India's explosion in growth?
1: I'm personally not too sure about environmental changes. But mm. certainly with better technology, mm. we, over the years, I'm able to see people getting diagnosis much earlier, people coming to us in a much better condition and what I saw when I was in Nemance about forty years ago,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, in the early days, it used to be people would be blind by the time they have a brain tumor. Uh, oh, I would okay. have a picture of a little boy sitting in the hospital ward,
2: mm-hmm.
1: gazing at the roof because he would hear the sound, sound of an aeroplane, and the typical boy, you know trying to scan the sound of an aircraft. Mm. And the moment I looked at the boy, I knew he didn't have his vision because he was trying to look for an aircraft. Now, this was the kind of problems we used to see. People used to lose their vision by the time they would come to us. But mm-hmm. today, uh, you know, MRIs are being done for so, so many reasons. Yeah, And uh, pretty often we have another kind of a problem where people have brain tumors, which are extremely small, which is not their problem at all. But now after doing a scan, they find they have a problem. Mm. And uh, that brings about a, a whole lot of new issues, whether we need to operate, whether we need to treat. So uh, I think technology is what made a great difference rather than, I would think, the environment or the other situations in my experience.
0: Right. No, I think what I uh, meant to ask when it comes to environment, because of course you're, you're referring more to the, 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 when they come to you with, um a diagnosis which sometimes the diagnosis is too late so as a result it's manifested uh and uh the the symptoms have spread to as you said vision loss or when it comes to spinal um spinal spinal injuries or those kind of issues but just the nervous system itself like you look at uh I, I don't know if that's something you want to answer but when it comes to the nervous system you have people with a lot more um you know dealing with anxiety, dealing with a lot more environmental related stuff, like when it comes to lifestyle. So does any of that play a role in, um, you know, can it contribute to escalated issues in the, for the nervous system? And as as a result, uh, the cases that come to you, I don't know if the question's clear.
1: I'm clear uh, about your question. At least I hope I'm clear. (laughs) I am a, a practicing neurosurgeon. That means mm. by patients come to us after they see a primary physician. Very mm. often they've seen a specialist. They've had a filter of about two doctors by the time they reach to a super specialized level. Right. Yet, sixty percent of patients who finally reach me, I'm sitting and trying to look back and say, you know, this person's problem is clearly, clearly psychosomatic. Psychosomatic mm-hmm. means he's un. There's so much pressure, maybe at work, maybe at family, maybe or whatever. And he has come to a level of breakdown where he's not able to handle his life. Mm. Now, if you ask me, how has the trend been over the years? uh, I would say it is about the same. I don't, you know, psychological issues have been an important point uh, in bringing a person to a doctor, which means now, if I've been having a lot of physical pain, some amount of back pain or neck pain, Mm-hmm. Somehow you manage with your problems, but then you really break down when stress becomes critical. Mm-hmm. When you have too much problems and too much psychological issues to deal with, and you find that I'm not going to, I'm just not able to handle it. Particularly, maybe women in certain communities where there, where are, you know, they don't have that much of financial freedom,
2: mm-hmm.
1: being subject to a lot of abuse. Uh, when they come to us with all medical problems, when they really open up, what really speaks is your heart is speaking of psychological pain. Mm, so yeah. 60%, which is but quite a high figure in my uh, at this level of experience. So all we really need to see is spend a little more time and tell them how they can have to handle their own emotions. Because they are really suffering not because of back pain or neck pain or a spinal issue, they're mm. suffering because their own emotions they're not able to handle, and they're simply breaking down because of stress.
0: Which, which is amazing, right? Because of course you 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 have you, you intervene at a level where it's come to a point where you have to um, perform a procedure and you know physically correct certain whether it's a growth or whether it's an injury or in some cases a brain injury. But these things, which at the early stage they are emotional, which Uh, go unattended, unrecognized, unaddressed, which build up. So the connection of having, whether it's thought or whether it's it's non-physical injuries, which can build up over time uh, to a level where then you need invasive procedures, how long is that typical period? Is there a fixed thing or is person-to-person? Because at at what level can you reverse this process so it doesn't have to get to a surgical intervention or uh, to a level where it's a complete breakdown of the body?
1: Uh, it's difficult to say, but usually it has been a pattern that has going on for many years. You know, a person has been going through a certain emotional upset for a certain period of time and it's difficult to say how many months or how many years. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it could be immediate change of environment. Sometimes it could be you know, for a woman after marriage relocation to a new place, trying to adjust Mm -hmm. to the in-laws. That's a time when they come down with a lot of uh, breakdown and new symptoms. Mm -hmm. Maybe a child who's gone to a university uh, trying to adapt to a new environment, not getting used to the new subject you know, that's when they again come with headaches and a lot of other symptoms. Generally, you know, they're not too sure whether they have to continue in their same career. So Mm. it is a lot of, uh, uh, so these are sometimes we see a definite incident in their life, which brings them to us. Uh, But sometimes it is, uh, uh, you know, uh, maybe the husband has been away for a long time and the husband has come back from abroad. uh, And that's the time, you know, they get access to medical care. So. So quite a lot of what I'm trying to say is, even at a tertiary level, a part of our job is not treating a brain tumor or a spinal aspect, but trying to help people to handle their own emotions. It could be even a family, let's say a mother has got a child with a brain tumor.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. We need to operate the child who's having a brain tumor, but we need to see the emotional load on the entire family. Mm, mm. When we go through the emotions. So part of our big job is to be able to make people comfortable with what is so that they are able to take the right decisions, because otherwise, if they are too emotional about what has happened to their child, then you will see that they are not able to have a good, healthy discussion. Now, when yeah. I'm speaking to you, you're able to analyze because your mind is available, you're listening to what I'm speaking. But when a person is so emotionally upset, there is a flurry of thoughts, we cannot make a reasonable discussion, the mm. emotional predominates. So part of our job is helping them to emotionally come to an equilibrium. It mm. may not be the first meeting, they'll say go back, go back again, come back again and another time. This is even for a family dealing with a brain tumor yeah because I have to explain about the risks of surgery, what we do, what are the options we do, and all this can be done if the mind is available for discussion.
0: These are all things that with the things that you mentioned which were moving to a different town for a woman who got married or for a child or a adult young adult going for university, which is in a different country, different town, different thing or even Separation from your family. These, but these, none of these things seem like they're severe trauma issues, right? I don't want to underline or undermine the word trauma, but the, these are things that are very uh, part and parcel of human existence, right? M- studying, getting married, moving away, experiencing the world. So w- why are we not able to face these emotions with balance? Why, why are these things, uh, kind of creating these oppressive, um, and more importantly, repressive kind of emotional um, situations which we're not able to overcome.
1: Uh, often, there are multiple factors. Often, it is like the last straw that breaks the camel's back. Mm. You know, the person is already battling certain other issues. That is, as you rightly said, you know, getting married, moving to a newer educational institution, where there are hundreds and hundreds of students. This, I mean, I guess just gave some random examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are almost considered norm. But yeah. then the person is already going through something and this comes as an additional, that's what really emotionally breaks them down.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This would be just one on. another. Uh, on, on. So there is something called, uh, you know, a pre-morbid condition. That means before a person comes to you with a problem, yeah. now he's already battling certain things which he may be going. So sometimes we be, we need to be able to analyze that. Sometimes people open up and share. That's why uh, a discussion with the doctor, the doctor needs to have a lot of time. And the doctor needs to be extremely patient. You know, when I'm with the patient, she should be with me. I, I should be with them 100%. I yeah. should not worry about those people waiting outside or, you know, am I g- going beyond my schedule and I just need to finish with this person. If Part of our communication is, you know, the person sits as close to you as possible when you speak to them. Mm-hmm. And for me, it is like having a very good eye contact mm-hmm. uh, to be able to be within a physical touch range of the person. You know, all these help a person to have a level of comfort uh, where they're able to trust, where they're able to open up. Yeah. Now, when these things happen, then uh, the whole relationship between a doctor and the patient becomes uh, totally different. The person, you know, normally we put so many barricades between us and the stranger. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. don't open up. And when it comes to a first interview with a doctor, you come with the most critical or the burning issue. But when a person is me, you know, if the person has the skill to break your natural defenses, if I can use that way, mm-hmm. because then you really open up and you're able to share. Uh, and that's when once a rapport develops. Uh, That is what, uh, you know, one of the first two meetings that we need to do with the patient is to build trust. Allow them to open up, allow them to share and find out really why they have come. You know, what is the most burning issue that they have come for? Now, if you're able to address that, then you are able to solve or address the real problem that they are going through.
0: And, you know, that's such a important thing and that clearly that you you seem to recognize and practice that which is not look at a patient as just a chart who someone you can either prescribe medicines to get them out of your clinic and if that doesn't work get them on the hospital bed send them into the OT, right? Because, you know, from stories you hear today, it just seems so clinical. It seems like such a sort of factory system where, you know, you kind of prescribe. The prescription doesn't work, then you send them along with the the supply the, the, the chain of <laughs> medical uh, experts, and next next thing you know, and and I, I I'm sure that there are a lot of doctors who share the same outlook as you, where it's b- b- developing that rapport, and not just looking at the problem that they came with, but like even someone who comes with a with high cholesterol of course you know it's immediately evident that you put them on statins but there is obviously as you said a pre morbid thing the that, that the way they've lived life whether what they put into their body physically emotionally um has also led to this but uh, increasingly in 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 a in a age of you know turnaround time people more and more want quick results how do you approach such a long um thought through Uh, approach to a patient and do they even have the patience to go back and say, okay, you know what, you might be willing to, but will they be willing to go for a longer um, approach to kind of undoing certain things that they've done or do they just want a quick fix with uh, their problem?
1: Everybody wants a quick fix. (laughs) 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 And nobody is willing to do anything uh, you know what, you know what they have done to create it. Mm-hmm. They just want, you know, I want this problem to be fixed. Please do it for me. I'm not ready to do anything myself. Mm. And sometimes, you know, when we put it back to them, that becomes very difficult. You know, if I have to reverse my lifestyle, if I have to reverse the way I have lived my life, which is the cause of all my problems. Mm. So, Uh, Very often, there is a hope that this doctor has got a magic formula. Mm. Uh, That is not true. You know, we need to be able to get to the root cause of, you know, why is this person suffering? What is the real problem? Is it physical? Is it psychological? Is it a combination? Uh, Now, if we can really hold a mirror to them to help them to diagnose, you know, what is their real problem? So, much much of our work is really that. Honestly, I can tell you, Sandeep, uh, you know, fortunately, we work with a very in a very limited field, and because our field is a, so limited, we have a certain amount of expertise. We see the same type of patients every day, uh, every day, and for years, we've been working on a very small field with a great degree of input. Mm-hmm. Now, even when you are working in a highly specialized field one of the things that comes to me is, my God, I have no idea what this person is going through. Yeah, you know? yeah. And fortunately, at this level, we can be more honest. All I can do is maybe a battery of certain tests to the brain, like we have good MRI, this, that. But quite often, we are left with, we have done so many tests, but I don't really have an answer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so even at that stage, if the doctor is or well, you know honest enough to be able to uh you know say this is the inputs that i have this is the information i have this is the, to the best of my understanding this is it mm. you know, essentially we need to help people to cope up with what they are going through and part of all our work is to uh, allow them to become more mentally strong because especially if a person is going through a problem 10 years plus and mm. i know i'm not able to change that problem overnight yeah yeah we need to be able to work on a certain mindset that helps them to reverse it
0: right it's almost holistic in nature right because Absolutely. more than just the phys, phys the physician and the physiology it's like you're almost taking on the role as a therapist like you have to do like the quote-unquote soft skills of it right you have to tell them Absolutely. to Absolutely. And, but what I find fascinating and I don't know if there's a rational explanation but all the things that we've spoken about our lifestyle a way a person has really not come to terms with certain things or the way they live their life is not really it's not really healthy or you know not maybe not even healthy being the word but conducive for their balance but why is there a medical explanation for, for why we see these issues whether it's a brain tumor whether it's these as you as, as you said certain spinal disorders uh, why why do they happen to children then because Technically, children have really sort of represent the most innocent aspect of humanity, right?
1: You know, this is a scientifically an extremely difficult question to answer. Now, yeah. in our own textbooks, we will have you know before we study any particular chapter, any brain tumor or any spinal problem or any, you know, they will give you so many reasons why it could be. But when mm. it comes to a given patient and the patient specifically asked like a little child has come with a brain tumor, you know, what wrong has the child done in its own lifespan to have this kind of a tumor? And this may not be congenital, it may not be something genetic. So we have really no answers to all these. Mm. Uh, so from a scientific angle, I have no answers. So we are a little frank by telling them, you know, I have no answers to why this has happened. But from my scientific knowledge, I know for this problem, what should the approach be? How do we go about it? And I can give you a kind of a roadmap to look forward. And can we together work on to see how we can as best mitigate this problem, do what is conventionally expected outcome for a given problem. So right. uh, this is what we're doing.
0: Right, which must be very difficult, right? Because it's, 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 you know you're, you're struggling to kind of be um rational at the same time there's so many things but uh, there's another aspect to your to your um life which I want to talk about now which is this this um this i wouldn't say practice or this but this part of your life where you've dedicated to understanding uh, the spiritual seeking which is um uh, I don't know the exact term. So I I want you to say it in your own words. So could you talk a little bit about that? And maybe we can kind of take it forward from there.
1: Uh, You know, if I really have to answer your question, when a person comes to me and they ask me specifically, you know, why this? Mm -hmm. uh, I cannot answer it through science. I -hmm. have to go go to it beyond science. Mm -hmm. And whenever it is beyond science, a scientific person will say it's non-science or nonsense. Mm-hmm. But of course, a lot of people, if you develop a certain rapport, are able to come to certain conventional knowledge. Uh, and uh, you know, my personal interest has been into. Uh, what is called the end portion of the Vedas or the Vedanta or the Upanishads. Mm -hmm. The Upanishadic wisdom has helped me personally a great deal to be a physician, to be a doctor, to be able to handle my own emotions, to be able to help people. And if you go through this, you know, from the wisdom of the Vedas, and there is something called the karmic law. Mm -hmm. Now, extremely difficult for a person initially to be able to accept it. Now the the karma theory says that we have not only lived one life, we have lived many lives. Mm. And why am I born to a good family, uh, you know, a family that takes good care of me, has got reasonably good uh, economic resources, education, so on? Is good karma. Why is somebody born to an alcoholic family where there is a lot of abuse, not taken care of, very difficult to accept, but that it is. It says it is. All is product of our karma. Now, it is difficult to accept it that way. But then, let me say this way: any action that I do, good or bad, if I do a good action right, right now, now this is a universal accounting system for whatever we do. If I do okay. a good action, I get some merit points. If I do something bad, I have to pay for it. That anybody sees, so there is a universal computing device, and which calculates in his own way. And uh, many people in my own, you know, I had a cousin who was going through a a a cancer. Mm -hmm. She was uh, not, you know, uh, not too old enough to die. She was less than sixty, and uh, she had gone through chemotherapy. She had become skin and bone. I was seeing her after a long time. I entered the ICU of another hospital, and I was looking for her. And I could see somebody staring from the corner of her eyes. Her eyes were popping up because the body had become almost like a skeleton. Mm-hmm. She recognized And I went to her and spoke to her for some time. And then uh, one question she had to me is, you know, why did I have to go through all this? Yeah. And after some time, I. Uh, You know, it's all because of karma. And believe me, uh, her daughter called me up and said, you know, my mother was so much at peace after she heard what you said. You know, her resistance, her battle, she suddenly seemed to give up because she seemed to be convinced that, you know, all her karmic debts were being cleared in a certain way. Uh, so, some people and I've seen people who may not be Hindus who may belong to another community mm-hmm. now even for a Muslim, let's say you know there is a certain prayer called inshallah mm-hmm. so a lot of people you know we, we deal with a lot of people coming from Bangladesh and, you know inshallah is something they you use very often mm-hmm. and you use the word inshallah you know when helping them to accept the will of the Lord mm-hmm suddenly a kind of a resistance to what they were battling with goes away you know the problem is problem you have a certain problem but when i offer a certain resistance to it i compound that problem but when i when my resistance goes 50% of the inner battle goes and it becomes easier for the doctor to handle and do whatever you can so part of us in That way, I find the karma theory, because scientifically, I cannot explain. But Mm -hmm. many people are able to accept the law of karma and seeing when I'm going through my suffering, maybe my karmic debts are being cleared. And maybe I do not know, I must have done something wrong. And this is clearing my account.
0: And I find that, you know, in in today's um, increasingly intolerant way of looking at life, some people would say, how is someone who's so scientifically brilliant, who's reached the pinnacle of his field, who's the director of one of the most prestigious, um, you know, institutions for neurosciences, um, who's, you know, and I'm saying a lot of people in India love the thing that you've studied so hard, you're a doctor. And then they say, oh, but religion and science can never go together. And of course, I understand the Vedas are not Quote unquote religious texts in that way, but they go beyond that. And I mean, I don't mean religion in today's context, which is politicized, but I mean, it goes back to ancient knowledge. But when you merge the two, um, and, and, and rather, how do you go beyond your mind of technical terms, medical terms, that, and, and kind of find a way to accept these, uh, theories, say, for instance, karma or the, the idea of, um, Living beyond this particular manifestation of uh, a human experience and how to take it forward, that various other words for it, which I I don't want to butcher by saying it wrong. But how do you kind of broaden your mind to include these and also, more importantly, uh, implement this into the way you look at life and the way you kind of treat people through that?
1: Yes, Sandeep. Uh, I have been working in this hospital for almost about 20 years now. And when I joined this hospital, I had absolutely no idea about this aspect of religion, about the Gita or the knowledge of Vedanta, absolutely none. I was just like any other doctor who had some idea that, you know, among these scriptures, there is something called the Bhagavad Gita and so on. It so happened that our hospital opened up a unit at Chinmanishin Hospital. Mm -hmm. And there I asked uh, Swamiji there to inaugurate our services. And this little interaction, one led to another, uh, because he asked me to be the chief guest for a Bhagavad Gita program. And I thought I had to get some idea of the Gita that forced me to look into certain audios on the Gita. Mm -hmm that uh, exposure has transformed my life. And once I discovered something so wonderful in the Bhagavad Gita and the Vedanta, the next big step that I really did was introduce it to my own colleagues in hospital. Mm -hmm. It was amazing that so many doctors and nurses, you know, this is, uh, although I'm introducing, uh, I would not bring in only the Gita, I would bring in all religions. And you have, you know, most of our nurses are Christians. So we would have classes in hospital with all groups of people. Once a week, I would do this and expose my learnings to a lot of people. It happened that uh, Al Jazeera was doing a documentary on Dr. Devi Shetty. Mm -hmm. And they heard that, you know, some sort of meditation and yoga and uh, spiritual inputs were happening in our hospital. Mm -hmm. So we're always looking at something. So in one of their episodes, they included my classes that I have taken for our people. So what really went through is so many cardiologists, neurologists, neurosurgeons now have become open to integrating spiritual wisdom along with their medical practice. I can honestly say uh, the ability to handle themselves have become better. The way they treat patients have become better. Now, one of the things that they have really learned is how blessed we are to be on the other side to be able to treat a patient. Mm-hmm. You know, the... Uh, A a doctor's existence depends on the patient. You know, when you are a super specialist and when you have so many people waiting, sometimes there is an ego that feels, you know, a sense of arrogance, let them wait. But on the other hand, when you realize that my existence is dependent on them, they are paying for me. I come to a hospital, but they are, you know, they are being billed and my car and my travel and everything comes from them. And the more I value them, So as I said, when I come to meeting a particular patient, if I have 15 minutes per patient, those moments I'm 100% available for them. And I've seen this with Dr. Devi Shetty. You know, his secretary may be bringing another phone or a call, but when he is with a patient, he's 100%. He's with them, you know, looking into their eyes, feeling their pulse, feeling their heartbeat, really. And then until their last question, You know, one of his style is, is there anything else you want to ask? You know, he always concludes with that. There should not be a feeling that the doctor has not given enough time. You know, however busy you are, uh, the patient is the most important person. And if you value the patient and the the patient creates a doctor and I am there because of the patient, then you give your time, you give your 100% whenever you're with them.
0: And does this seem to be um, being accepted? Because you said it is in your hospital with your colleagues and with the staff. But how much of this is uh, can be integrated going forward? Because it feels like it's important, not just with, the, 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 with medis- medical practitioners, but with everyone, right? If, if, because it seems like even a one-on-one conversation uh, with other professionals seems to be so distracted, filled with looking at your cell phone, waiting, you know, seeming to be, so busy that your thoughts are all over the place so let's stick to sort of specifically to medicine but do you see a future where these two uh fields of spiritual um i wouldn't say awakening because that's too profound an experience but even a initial integration of spiritual texts into something as scientific as medicine can uh, be the future of what we can kind of kind of train the future stuff
1: Uh, Let let me go back to the previous thing, you know, how do you uh, integrate spiritual aspects because in a scientific world, because, you know, normal science would not accept spirituality. Mm. Although these are more anecdotal that I've seen as exposed to a few doctors in our hospital. But this is, uh, uh, I really, really hope that this would happen over a period of time that doctors are able to integrate certain humanistic values, certain spiritual values, because this field compared to any other field, uh, I think is one of the greatest uh, opportunities that you get in handling another human being.
2: Mm-hmm. to be
1: Able to value that person as the most important person at all my training, I'm available for you. And when you do that, and we are not focused on what is it that I can get from him. Yeah. You know, it should be the other way around. You know, I'm not here to be able to extract from this person, depending upon his ability to pay. On the other hand, let me see what I can do. Then it becomes a win-win approach. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I will tell you, uh, a patient and a family can easily see through you. Are you here to extract from them? Or are you here to give? And uh, I think doctors over a period of time, as they become a little more senior, they learn this in their own practice. Mm. That unless you are here to give, uh, the real success comes by the more you give, you know, the more you contribute is the more you get.
0: And, you know, that's an interesting thing when, you know, uh, you look at, uh, again, the 50s, 60s, 70s, when it comes to psychologists who... Uh, we very dismissive of these texts, especially when it comes to the consciousness. And I think—and correct me if I'm wrong—but I think in Vedanta there's 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 a uh, belief, or rather, there's a saying that we're all part of the same consciousness, and we are almost, for lack of a better example, like waves and an ocean where we uh, uh, come back and we. We, we don't really have an identity of our own, but the self is a part of a larger thing. Now, a lot of them dismiss this and now the, the, the they're going back to certain texts and say, hey, this is actually proven in science. Um, what? How do you kind of uh, approach this and how do you apply it to your life?
1: Very true, absolutely true that conventional psychology and conventional medicine are, are not able to accept this Vedantic view that, We are all essentially the same, like one ocean and all of us different waves. And, you know, the benefit of being able to see is that you're able to see oneness in each other or the Mm. essential oneness in each other. Although we may differ in color, we may differ in, you know, external features, but we are all, if I'm able to see myself in you and uh, you in me, uh, that is what the real essence of all Vedanta is. Conventional medicine, conventional psychology finds it extremely difficult, would not accept this. But I have something very unusual. That means those of our doctors who have been through this uh, understanding of this consciousness and Vedanta, when they go to medical meetings and when they speak, you know, uh, without their knowledge, they are speaking more of Vedanta than they are speaking conventional Uh, or uh, traditional psychiatry and psychology. Mm. And beauty is even in medical meetings, they're being accepted, even in medical meeting. And as you said, you know, more and more in quantum physics and science, the whole Vedantic theory that we are, you know, this whole world, difficult to believe, that's what Vedanta says, is not as real as you think, it is more of an appearance. Uh, uh, So this is one of the last things we say, because people find it extremely difficult to believe that the world may not be as real as you think. Mm. Uh, And the reality is the observer, the one who's watching is more real than anything else that you observe.
0: Wow. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I want to now talk to you not as Dr. Timapa Hegde, the neurosurgeon, but I want to go down this path because it's very, very intriguing because um, in an increasing time and people listening right now probably, you know, slap their heads going, Sandeep, you start here again about the individualistic nature of where we be, we're being told uh, to look out for ourselves, to put ourselves beyond other people, the sense of duty. And this these were certain things which were prevalent in India, you know, the idea of family, the idea of duty, the idea of community. And they seem to be at some point dissolving for the larger benefit of personal gain. How does... uh? How does this fit into the, you know, the Vedantic um, school of thought, and is there a reason why this is happening, or is this a journey to something beyond?
1: Uh, absolutely, you know, uh, more and more today we're becoming more and more selfish. I, my family, my profession, my possessions become more important Mm -hmm. and everything else becomes less important. Mm -hmm. So we give a lot of importance to first myself, my body, my profession, my house, my possessions, my children, my spouse, my so-and-so. Now, the first thing that Vedanta hammers all this is to learn to devalue all these things which we normally value. right? You know, if if I, and this this comes not in the beginning of a training, but this comes towards the end. And I have to learn to give less importance to anything that I normally value. Uh, the Vedantic word for it is Mithya. Mithya means it appears to exist, mm-hmm. uh, but it is not as real. And the more and more you are convinced about it, and what, and what is real? See, uh, I'm seeing you. I can hear you. Is it my ears are hearing? It, 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 that whole training is that my whole body mind is only an instrument for that conscious principle, which is listening. And once I understand that I am consciousness, then suddenly few things happen. I have no birth. I have no death. I have no limitations whatsoever. Now, this is a mind boggling understanding when this understanding helps two things really happen that you know you have an internal sense of fulfillment this is what there is a few, nice mantra called om purna purnamidam purna means complete now mm. when somebody is frying a puri you will see in the early stages it keeps running around in the pan but once it is fully bloated it becomes very still mm. so the whole vision of vedanta is to be full by yourself That means when you are okay, your whole world is okay. And then you you are not dependent on the world physically or emotionally for anything. For that matter, you're not dependent on your own body. And from your body comes your family, your possessions and so on. So Mm. if this vision comes that I'm okay by myself, I am full. I don't need to put my hand into somebody else's possessions to make myself complete. Because this is a never-ending thing. You know, the more you become greedy for something else. But on the other hand, if you believe that the whole world is in you, then what are you looking for? So the whole vision of Vedanta is to be able to discover fulfillment just the way you are. And then continue to do whatever roles that you have to do, like a role. Now that's what your karmic rule is. Your karma has made you... A man, karma has made you a doctor, has put you into a certain family. But this is only a sort of a role play. Every morning I get up, I get into this body and discover, okay, these are my, according to the director, I have to play a certain role. And once my role is over, I put my costume aside. Now, this is our understanding that I'm okay by myself. But for this world, which is called a transactional world, I have to put on a body of a certain role, play my role. If it's a difficult role where I have to cry in from somebody, in front of somebody, I go through those emotions like an actor goes through. But I don't suffer internally uh, any humiliation or any suffering. This is a role that an actor does on the stage without feeling bad about
0: it. It's almost like a sense of contentment saying I have I am everything I need to be. But I'm also going to create a sense of detachment from these things that cause suffering because... You know there's i'm sure you're aware of this saying in in uh, that uh, psychologists use or uh, therapists use which is the true self and the working self right and the true self being something that cannot be touched by greed or, or the illusion yes. but yes. the working self is how we use these senses and use this mind and body to interpret the world around us and that's where a lot of the ego comes from so uh can you talk a little bit about how um well, the mind slash brain. I don't inter, uh, loosely interchange the two because you work, of course. Now I'm asking you to wear your um, get back into your role play of Doctor Thimmapurayegde, uh, but how does that um, uh, come in the way, or does it enhance this idea of an extension of the conscious, uh, of the larger conscious?
1: Yeah, no, I uh, really like those two terms: that your working self and your true self. Mm. So, uh, so this dichotomy is there. There is a mm-hmm. dichotomy between my true self and mm-hmm. my working self or my transactional self. Because maybe when I am at home or you know, I may not be working in that sense. So there is a transactional self and there is a true self. So throughout the period when you are awake, mm-hmm. uh, you are in your transactional self. You enter into this body, do your transactional self. Mm-hmm. You are fast asleep. That is a glorious moment when you are one with yourself. No, I, I didn't get the question that you were trying to say.
0: Uh, uh Well, I think it's it's more of I, I I yeah, I'm sorry if the questions are a bit vague, but what I'm trying to understand is there is clearly um as as you mentioned early on is when you hear the the the, the, the karmic law, there a lot of times the resistance to our problems is dropped, right? But it seems that this uh in in, in our Uh, physical existence as human beings a lot of times what prevents us from recognizing the oneness of human beings or recognizing this uh, connectedness of uh, each other the fact that we all are extension of the same larger conscience um, is this personal brain or mind and also maybe called the ego so how does uh, that fit into it like how how much of resistance does that, that put up
1: Absolutely. Very good question for me. Uh, because, you know, your mind, our mind can be my greatest friend, it can be my greatest enemy too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it Whenever I uh, see myself distinct from everybody else, mm-hmm. the ego is born and they have a very strong ego and then all my effort is to be able to protect myself and my uh, so that is why they say ego is edging god out you know yeah. the more you have the ego the less of the divine is able to flow through you mm-hmm. but but then if you have a very fluid ego fluid ego in the sense it is only a role play now mm-hmm. i have to play a certain role as a doctor as a man i have a very clearly defined role mm-hmm. now As far as this role is concerned, there is no compromise in society. If I don't do that, I have a certain price to pay. Now, I understand these roles and I play my role 100%. But all the time remembering I am someone other than the role. Now, this is the only training of Vedanta, believe me, because that is the only way you make use of your mind as a friend. You know, when the mind becomes your friend, then you... No longer have a resistance why somebody is driving a better car or having a higher pay packet than you know he's working as hard as I'm doing, but they're seeming to have a better life. Mm -hmm. You know, this sort of comparison does not happen. You know, the director will allot all of us different roles to play depending upon your ability. Mm
2: -hmm. As
1: long as I see this is only a role play and I have absolutely no resistance as far as my role. Again, this is not an understanding or an acceptance that comes easily. But the whole attempt of every Vedantic teacher is to help you to understand that what you're doing is a kind of a drama on the big stage of life,
0: and, and that's yeah, and that's such an amazing thing to 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 actually live like right. If you, uh, it almost sounds in my own interpretation, it without knowing too much about the Vedanta, the, the school of thought, is that you know what you tell your mind that what you do is not the most important thing in the sense it's not a reflection of who you are but it's just something that you do and the moment you look at it like that it actually takes us back to what you said in the beginning that people who come with tumors or people who come with this years of holding on to something because that's the only way they knew themselves is uh as a result of maybe social conditioning or uh you know the pressure of family expectations it's almost like let go saying you know what okay, I might be expected to top top my engineering program, come out as this MBA graduate who tops the company, becomes a CEO. But if you look at it saying say, it's just another role I play, then you're able to kind of look past the seriousness that you attach to that role and say, you know what? It's just something I do and it's not who I am, which is quite a big release from holding on to the stress of life.
1: Absolutely, Sandeep. You know, all our stress is this But then sometimes people may argue that if you are going to take it so casually, now, will that affect your performance? But I have seen it is just the other way, because now you are no longer stressed about the resistance of your role. Now you can play the drama of your life more intensely. Now, even if, let us say, we have won four matches out of a five-match series, and I have won all four of them, and you're playing the fifth, you already have won the rest of them. Now, how do you play the fifth? See, now I have, I don't have to prove anything to anybody because internally I know I am okay. Now, am I going to play the fifth test match or the fifth match very casually? I'm going to enjoy myself. I'm going to still give my very best. So it will not take away your performance. In the, on the other hand, you enjoy 100% what you do. But really, uh, then the, uh, the seriousness is gone. That is why I mm. insist every time Play your role sincerely, but don't be serious. If you are too serious about your role, you have missed the point.
0: But someone then would argue saying with a uh, field like medicine, when you're dealing with people's lives, you have to go through years of studying. And people right now who may be listening who are potentially uh, training to be doctors who are going through the, uh, I think, 50 years of training something. <laughs> uh, how how will they interpret what you said? Because you've gone through the entire Indian system, you've, you've, you've gone through the entire certification system. And if Someone like you tells them be sincere, but don't take it seriously. Uh, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Is how would they interpret that? Because our entire system in India is geared towards be serious, go for coaching from the age of six months or however old you are, and become the best student. And then you have to put those medals on, show it off with the family thing. So it's clearly a contr- contrary way of looking at your job as not serious, right? Because you are when you are the CEO. You are almost like a beacon in that family saying, My son, CEO, not that he's a person who's playing the role of CEO. So, h- how would you approach the distinction? Because clearly it is so ingrained in us that we're not able to look beyond the attachment of role and ourselves.
1: Now, if you see great cricket captains like Dhoni, you will call him Captain Cool. Mm. Now, you, that's what I mean by a distinction between sincerity and seriousness. Mm-hmm. seriousness is when, uh, uh, you know, you get affected by your role. Mm. On the other hand, a sincerity is a person is still doing whatever he should do as a captain, as a player 100%. But then I'm not affected by my leadership role, or the fact that so many people are expecting something from me. Mm-hmm. See, one of the important things that I've learned is I don't have to prove anything to anybody because I know myself. Mm. You know, often when I don't know my true worth, we spend so much of our efforts in looking good and being good. uh, And, you know, and much of our efforts is is rather than being good. Mm -hmm. More of our effort in looking good in the eyes of people rather than being good. So uh, the focus now is on ourselves. That is why I say sometimes it is okay to be selfish. If I'm okay, my world is okay. My family will be okay. My organization will be okay. So one of the most important things for all of us to remember is you, Sandeep, and everyone who's listening is the most important person in the world. This whole world is made for you. And you are the center of the universe. And if you are okay, the way you look at the world, the way you interact with the world becomes better. But uh, and, and therefore, my well-being, my physical comfort is okay. Take care of whatever your personal needs are. And once you are in a good mental state of mind to perform, then you perform. You know, sometimes as doctors, when you get an emergency call, we run. One of my first training by one of my seniors, when I got an emergency, he said, hold on. Nothing happens if you go two seconds later. You know, just address your body and see you're okay. Now, sometimes you are in your duty room, you've not even freshened up, you've not taken care of your appearance, maybe you've not even gone to the washroom, you got a call and you run. But then you do not know when you come back to your room next. And therefore, when you go to your patient, go go well presented, you know, even in an emergency situation. That means if I'm okay, if I'm physically okay, that includes My appearance and everything. You know, if I've got up from my room with my hair all a mess and I've come, you know, the patient in an emergency is also not happy to share themselves with somebody. So therefore, uh, I'm just giving you certain examples which come to my mind. Everywhere it is, my physical well-being should be okay, my mental well-being. And when I'm okay, I'm able to interact better as a doctor, as a person and so on.
0: You know, what's so fascinating is that it's so lovely because on one front, we're talking about this whole me, my family, and this selfishness, which is uh, the individualistic trait that we're asked to put down others for our own benefit. Yet at the same time, it sounds very similar, but it's vastly different is looking at yourself to take care of yourself. Because in the process of the former is that you're constantly trying to be in uh, um, um. externally driven by things around you, as opposed to saying, you know what, I look after things. So that way, the interaction I have with the world around me comes from a place where I'm fine. So I'm not trying to put someone down. So I feel better. I'm not trying to undo someone because they're a threat to me. But i come from a place of contentment and detachment as opposed to selfishness um, and a sense of insecurity, for lack of a better word.
1: Absolutely, Sandeep. That's what, uh, you know, a doctor needs to come from a few things, from a sense of I'm okay by myself. I'm not dependent on my patient or anybody for my livelihood. I'm okay. When you come from that aspect, then you are here not as a consumer, but as a contributor. Now, one of the vision of a doctor should be Real success is on a given day if I have been able to give more than I have received out of my time and my resources. You know, the shift from being a consumer to being a contributor. On a long run, you still stand to gain. But, and also we learn that, you know, from a material world, there can be no fulfillment in any amount of money or any amount of possessions that uh, can never, you will see people in the pinnacle of power, wanting more, wanting it longer. Mm -hmm. So we really know the hollowness of the material world. Uh, That is where spiritual inputs say, you know, the world is very important for basic requirements, but for fulfillment, for peace, for security, for happiness, learn to discover it in yourself.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, that extends an extension of what you said, right? If you're able to be at peace with yourself then the things you do which is whether considered as work or recreation the interactions with colleagues with friends and the world at large and everything that it has to offer is just like a like a playing field and you can engage with it without uh, you know without remorse without anger without greed hatred all the things that seem to be um, trending right now (laughs) but yeah um, Doctor I want to ask you one last question before we wind up is we seem to be heading towards a society that wants to live for as long as possible there's a fear of dying and what I personally believe is that a lot of us are scared of dying so in the process of being afraid of death we forget to live so how does this uh, this this both your roles as a, a person of who's studying spiritual um texts and the especially a, school, a student of Vedanta and Dr. Timapa Hegde, the neurosurgeon, H- how do you navigate this path that we are we've set ourselves on as a generation, a society, and maybe even the world?
1: Sandeep, this is what I would say as my absolute conviction, uh, whatever I have learned from Vedanta and what I would be able to integrate in science in my early days at Nimhans. I had a patient who came with Parkinson's disease. And then uh, there was a very conventional old form of a treatment of putting a needle inside into the brain and injecting a certain amount of alcohol. Mm -hmm. And then very dramatically, the Parkinsonism would immediately go in front of you. So this was the kind of treatment we were doing. And there was one particular uh, doctor who I was assisting. I was a student at that time, and he was also an astrologer in the sense that he was a very good palmist. He could read the palm. And uh, then we did some form of treatment, and immediately something went wrong. The person had heavy breathing. He had to be shifted to the intensive care, his breathing. had That means there had been a problem, and it looked like he he may not survive. And the doctor looked at the patient, and he says, see, this man uh, has got a very good lifespan. He should live for at least 60 years. Uh, How old is he? I looked at the chart and said, sir, he's 60 years old. And fair enough, he died. Now, this person had the ability to see the palm of a person and see a particular patient and say, "Ah, I'm not going to operate this patient. And for no reason. But then another doctor operated on him and we lost that patient. What Mm -hmm. I'm trying to say is there are through astrology and through science which give an indication of the life of a human being. Now, these are indicators like the fuel indicator, you know, right. in your how much fuel is there in your tank. Now, sometimes if you go by Vedanta, it, Vedanta says that when you are born into this world, you are born with a certain amount of punya or papa. That means the punya gives you happiness, papa gives you sorrow. Yeah. And it is like when you send a child to a foreign university. Now, of course, there are a lot of money transfer options. But imagine in some many hundred years ago, 50 years ago, you have to give him a certain amount of money. And yeah. that is the one that he has to live. So yeah. when a person is born, he is born with a certain unit of punya and papa. Now, as we go every day, we expend a certain amount of our punya and papa. That is why what wakes you up early in the morning is not your alarm clock. It is your karma that wakes you up because today I have to finish so much of punya and papa. If I don't get up, my punya papa will not be exhausted. So we think the alarm clock wakes you, but it is your karmic clock that wakes you. And once that quotient is over, the person may drop in the middle of an operating theater. You may be operating, but in the operating room, you will drop like Abdul Kalam is giving a talk and in the middle your karmic quotient like sometimes on an elevated road we see when the fuel drops off in many of those uh, bikes which are electric bikes they stop in the middle and they mm. abandon bikes there now so when my karmic law when my karma is over the body drops so for mm. those of us students of Vedanta know I have been there from the beginning I will be there for an end there is no beginning there is no end there is really no death for a person who has understood but this body has a beginning, this body has an end. The more I see my body as an instrument, like I have changed so many computers, I have changed so many pens, if the pen is not working, I change it and get a new one. So too, that is should be the attitude towards one life, not so much of an investment. It is only an instrument that helps me to write. It's an instrument that helps me to communicate with the world. And that is how I need to see my body. It's got a certain amount of fixed lifespan. And when you see that, we know one thing for sure: our real nature is there from forever. I have been there from the beginning. I will be there. It's like the ocean producing the waves. The wave will come back to the ocean. The wave, water has no beginning, no end. A wave has a beginning. A wave has an end. If I identify with the water, there is no beginning. There is no end. That is one aspect. Sandeep before we conclude I want to share something which is very central to me I do not know where you can fit in
0: No absolutely uncle I'd love to this is just perfect for people and especially for me as well to listen to because it reinforces a, a lot of this way of thinking that you are so caught up by the for lack of a better word the material pursuits that are uh, given out as a as a sense of what you Um, are valued by. And it's so hard to strip that away, you know, because every time you take a step forward in this direction, saying that I am not these things, there's always one reinforcing belief saying, no, no, but you have to get more because, yeah, in an ideal world, in your spiritual circle, you might have a lovely conversation about it. But in the real world, what matters is currency, hard-earned currency, hard-earned material thing. But every time someone like you with the The typical, you've checked all the right boxes in the material where you've got all the accolades, but still you believe this. I think it's so important for everyone listening to hear it from someone like you because you've done the achievement, but you're not defined by it. So it's amazing and I appreciate that.
1: Sandeep, I want you to see where you can put this in. But this is what I, for me, is very central in my life. Early in life, I came across a teacher who helped me to value certain things it so happened that I went through a certain medical problem. And I thought I'm not going to survive long because I had a very serious liver disease at that time. I was sent from Bangalore to gastroenterologist in Chennai. This was about 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as a doctor, you will go through a medical record and you I thought I had what is called chronic active hepatitis which will give me about six months to live because the Bangalore doctors treated me for about a month and my jaundice would not get cured so I finally went to a gastroenterologist in Chennai Uh, it was a government hospital it was a junior doctors who examined me for some time finally I got to see the specialist and the doctor very confidently told me it's a kind of a variant of a hepatitis it is not what you think it is not chronic active hepatitis and I would expect that you will be okay. Now, that was 40 years ago. I thought I had just about six months to live. But that opened my eyes to what I call is the gift of life. You're not so grateful to be alive and uh, clubbed with the inputs of a certain teacher. What sent, became very central in my life is how lucky I am to be where I am, to be able to have another day, to be able to serve. And particularly when you are clubbed with This attitude of gratefulness and also to be a doctor who sees human suffering, to be able to help them in their own way. Later on, I came across another wonderful teaching, which is a part of what Jesus says, thy will be done or what in the Islamic prayer, inshallah. And I've been telling you right from the beginning, We are not able to accept our own life in some way. I wish I was more beautiful. I wish I was rich. I was rich. I was this. So when I'm not able to accept something, I have an internal resistance with my own life. Now, if I'm able to break this, I would like to leave uh, the show with two words which have transformed my life. The first word is thank you. I'm so grateful for all that I have. Second is yes, to be able to accept whatever. You know, whatever is my role, if I'm able to accept, and every role has its own limitations. You know, people have always have much better rules uh, compared to what I have. And the more I'm able to accept my role as the best role that I have and play my role as a role. So these are the two words I would like to live by to be able to say thank you and yes.
0: That's amazing, Uncle. Uh, I, I'm going to call you Uncle because I think I, the 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 personal connection has to, um, you know, I really appreciate it, and thank you for being here today and sharing all your experiences, your personal stories, and your insights into, well, living a medically um, recognized well life, well, well lived life, and also a spiritual um, uh, well lived life, and in fact, how you identify both can coincide and can be meaningful and fulfilling and um, non-selfish. So thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Sandeep. I didn't realize how we spent this time. It was a, a nice experience of being so completely with you. Thank you very much. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Dr. timapai I appreciate it.